0: Adoptional podcast. My name's Allie, and I'm super excited to have a guest here today. Her name is Erin, and we met through one of our Facebook groups that we're both part of. She is also a Chinese adoptee, and she has been so gracious to lend her time to me tonight. So welcome, Erin.
1: All right. Hello. My name is Erin. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently a rising sophomore at Bryn Mawr College, a historically women's college near Philadelphia. And I'm also a history of art major, and as you mentioned, I'm a Chinese adoptee. But specifically, I'm from Pyeongchang, Jiangxi. So any listeners out there who are from my home city, welcome.
0: That's really cool. And so did you decide you wanted to do that major for a while now?
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely something that I came to college. I was like, I want to be a history of art major. But definitely my journey with art, I think, has definitely evolved with my journey with my adoptee self as well. In college, I've primarily so far been studying Chinese art and like contemporary post colonial art, which I feel like has given me a really rich foundation for the rest of my art history education. Just as the art history, like the field itself, is like inherently very Western Eurocentric, so to have this foundation in Eastern art and like I mentioned, post colonial art, it's been really wonderful for me to have that perspective. And also, like, in studying Chinese art, I've had really brilliant professors teaching me. And they are professors from China, not yes. <laughs> European scholars. <laughs> so it, it's been wonderful having that Chinese perspective on Chinese art, which has kind of given me a connection into my own Chinese culture and identity as well.
0: Maybe it sounds like art is something that you've used to like express yourself over the years and has evolved as your adoptee journey has evolved
1: definitely definitely yeah i consider myself to be an artist of both linguistic and visual natures which basically is just a fancy way of saying that i write poetry and prose primarily short prose and i also dabble a little bit with painting i've also recently learned how to weld which has been really cool and as i mentioned earlier for listeners i am also a performance artist as well
0: that's really cool welding that's awesome It's really awesome. And so, can you tell us a little bit more about how your adoptee journey has affected your own art, or vice versa?
1: Yeah, definitely. So when I was 16, I actually was able to get in contact with my orphanage, and the way it worked in my home city was that most children, or I guess all of the children, rather, were placed into foster families, so the orphanage was essentially a waiting place. I was there for like two days, and then I was placed into a foster family. So they contacted me and they were like, hey, we found your foster family, would you want to talk to them? Maybe you could come over and visit them? And of course, I wasn't going to say no to that, um, and like I said, it was my 16th birthday was coming around the corner too, so my mom was like, okay, we'll just make that into your 16th birthday gift, and we'll go off to China. So. I ended up like I said, i ended up meeting like my foster family that previously I'd only had pictures of them. Like I have like a little like scrapbooks my parents had like sent mm-hmm. over a camera. Mm-hmm. And they're are really cute photos, like me and like particularly it was my foster grandmother who was taking care of me. Like I it was primarily also just like the woman of the family that took mm-hmm. care of me. I'm sure there are men in the scene, but they weren't in the photos and I didn't meet them either. So I just have like a very female centered family in my mind, which is really nice. So when I went to China, I feel like I had all these like expectations, just like, I mean, I grew up, I'm sure as many adoptees know, like the ex- experience of growing up in a predominantly white town, and obviously being a transracial adoptee too, with white parents and a white family as well, I had kind of expected going to China to be like this wonderful magical like transition this instant sense of belonging because being a transracial adoptee you know you always kind of you always feel like you're out of place and you always want to be I feel like when I was younger I always wanted to be like someone and somewhere else all the time so hmm. i had thought that going to china it would like fix all of those problems so i was very excited for my trip obviously because i'd meet my foster family but also because like I said I thought I would find like a sense of like wholeness. So when I was in China, it was very disorienting at first because mm-hmm. obviously it wasn't this whole like magical clicking in. It was more of this like jarring kind of like sense of being so aware of like my americanness and like my american upbringing and just seeing like how different and like how separate I was from this culture and like this land mm-hmm. and the people and obviously the language barrier as well. So, that was just very difficult for me at first. And I remember feeling initially or just like throughout like most of the trip, I remember feeling very very upset <laughs> that I had mm-hmm. all these expectations that had been let down that I had been holding essentially all my life. So, mm-hmm. but I remember meeting my foster family and I spent a good like week with them actually, which was really nice cuz that was towards the end of the trip cuz I was there for mm-hmm. like a month. So during like the last week, I remember like being with them um, and like at first because like I like the first like three weeks, it, I we'd been primarily doing like tourist stuff. I was there with my mom too, and mm-hmm. yeah, so we were doing like, all this stuff. And I mean, I didn't really feel like that sense of connection because I mean, I feel like there's always like the sense of like removal from like, immersing yourself actually in the culture. You like, are a tourist, so mm-hmm. the last week I didn't really have like, any high hopes or anything after feeling like very upset. -hmm. This is like one detail that I remember very vividly, and like I tell all my friends too. But I remember being in this airport, obviously, it was a Chinese airport, and I see like these families having like this happy reunion, and they're like running towards each other and crying tears of joy. And then I start crying, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not tears Mm -hmm. of joy. (laughs) And I'm listening to like Mitski's like, nobody. (laughs) And I'm just, (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. kind of like sobbing because I'm not having this happy family reunion. So, yeah. When I went to go meet my foster family, I like I said, not high hopes. And when we like did end up actually initially like, having like that first kind of ice like melting away, because like you know like when you're initially like, meeting people and people like who are supposed to be like your family in like that sense, and you haven't seen them for sixteen years, there is mm-hmm. obviously going to be like this very awkward like <laughs> holding period, holding space. So yeah, after that kind of went away. I remember just like being with them, walking through the city, and I have like these really great photos too, and they make like a really great companion set. My older photo album of my photos, mm-hmm. and they're just like these lovely memories that I have associated and attached with these. Because after those first few days, it was a really wonderful experience because. That's my image of my family in China, because I don't know who my birth family is, so my foster family is the substitute for that. And Mm -hmm. that was really lovely, that was really wonderful. And I remember coming back, and I came back, and I was going into my junior year, and in junior year at my high school, that's when you start like the IB program. So I was also, like I mentioned, I'm an artist, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do IB visual arts. And one thing in, in IB is... Very particular about it is that you're supposed to like have like a themed your body of work throughout like the two years that you're doing the course. So naturally, coming back from my China trip, and I had a great mentor too, like so many great mentors along the way, but particularly my Ivy visual arts teacher. He was very encouraging of me to really like process all of these emotions and process all of these experience through artwork because I had been like a bit hesitant. I mean, although I at the end like I did end up having a really wonderful experience, I still felt very board and still very much like I don't really belong anywhere because although it was like I said like a great experience with my foster family I still didn't really feel like that I had a place in China or a place in America still so mm-hmm. and I mean after all of, like these years of like <laughs> just being in like a PWI I was just very reluctant to express any facets of my adoptee like Chinese self because I had tried so long to just like assimilate and become like this white version of myself for so long. So my Mm. teacher convinced me, he was like, yeah, no, like, I remember he was like, you should really turn this into art. This can be very healing, very, like, therapeutic for you. And I was like, okay, maybe. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) taking the advice of a white man. (laughs) But I did. And Mm -hmm. I just remember I had, like, all, like, again, all these very complicated emotions, just, like, belonging, non-belonging. And then all like these like sort of like duality of being like Chinese and American, and then also like incorporating a lot because like also this is like through the pandemic to a lot of the rise in like Asian American hate, and just like also I incorporated my Asian friends and just like my own place and like that sort of those friendships and how those kind of like evolved to become found family for me. So yeah, no, it was a really wonderful experience being able to process that through art. But I don't feel like I would have gained as much from my China experience had I not been able to have the opportunity to be in like this arts program and really develop and cultivate my body of work. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you mentioned there's just a lot of complicated emotions during that China trip and after it too. And so I can only imagine what that would be like to just kind of keep it in instead of being able to talk about it. Do you feel like you could have talked about the experience or did you talk about the experience with? family and friends when you came back?
1: Yeah, definitely. So when I came back, I feel like immediately, because there was some time, because I'd gone in July, because that was the month I'd gone in. So in August, I remember just being very quiet and very sad, keeping it all contained into myself. I didn't really feel like I could talk about it that much, because again, I just felt like it was very... I felt like it was unimportant and that like other people wouldn't really care and also that I didn't feel like I could claim that space for like, myself to just be like, kind of just selfishly just talking about myself and like, all these very personal experiences. But in creating the art and I was like showcasing my artwork and sharing my projects with my friends because I love sharing my art with my friends, then I found that I was able to like, find this way to be able to talk about it and to be able to be open about being an adoptee And now in college, like I said, I'm continuing my arts practices. I'm very able to be like, it's one of the first things that people know about me, actually, that I am an adoptee because that's something that I really, really want people to know. And it's something that like in reaction to like my 16 years prior to this, I feel like in lieu of that silence, I now need to be very loud and open to it. So yeah.
0: Mm, Gotcha. Yeah, did it feel like that title or a label as an adoptee? Did it feel kind of like a negative one beforehand? Definitely. <laughs> it definitely had negative
1: connotations. I remember, and I feel like I, not even I feel like I know, like to like this day, it's something that I still struggle with. When I was younger, I would think the label of adoptee had this this like meaning of my mother, she really did not want me, and therefore, because my birth mother did not want me, no one else would want mm-hmm. me. So I felt like for so long, and I feel like this ties back into my not really being able to speak about this and feeling like it was selfish for me to claim space, I felt like I was like a burden for so long on like everybody, because <laughs> I was just, and I know this is like a common adoptee experience as well, but just... Feeling like labeling myself and identifying myself as an adoptee just to other people would denote you. This girl obviously even her family didn't want her, so <laughs> so yeah, I was not I was not open about that before.
0: Gotcha. And so you said you kind of grew up in a predominantly white town and kind of felt like you always stuck out. Did you have Asian friends or were able to meet Asian friends once you got to college?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, one thing that I mentioned earlier is that some of my Asian friends have become like my found family. I have this one friend in particular. My town, like it is, is very, very Caucasian, very white. And in my school, I was like one of three Asians in my grade. So it was hard to come by Asian friends, although I do have one Chinese best friend, and she is in the grade below me, going to college now, going to Cornell. So proud of her. <laughs> but you know, so she actually we call each other like sisters now, and we have like this kind of I guess found family relationship because although like she is younger than me, if it comes to like school or like matters of like relationship and just that kind of like life experience, I'm there as her like older sister. But when it comes to Chinese culture, both of her parents immigrated here, and her grandma lives next door. <laughs> like she kind of like take the older sister role in that. She like invites me over to her house. Her grandma like makes us like Chinese food and is like spooning it or I guess like chop-sticking it <laughs> into like our mm-hmm. bowls and she like invites me over to these like big family meals and she is always including me in these sort of chinese family elements and that's been really really great it's been so nice to have that because i mean and that's not to say that in college that i don't have other like amazing asian friends either it's just that being able to be so intimate with her family as mm-hmm. well, and having that sense of being folded in, that's given me like a really profound sense of feeling like I belong and feeling like I've found something that I've
0: always like yearned for my entire life. So yeah. Yeah, and that's such a, an important feeling to have just in all spaces, but hopefully at least one space in your life where you feel like you belong others because we're humans and we strive for connection when we feel disconnected it's just not a great feeling most of us know (laughs) and so did you have any other exposure to chinese culture before meeting that friend or any other i guess avenues to explore yeah so like a lot of other adoptees my
1: parents did try to immerse me in some chinese culture although I did always feel like there, like there was like this sense of in authenticity to it, and just being that like it wasn't necessarily like a culture that they were familiar with, and it wasn't really something that they could naturally be like, oh yeah, we're we're celebrating Lunar New Year <laughs> and all of that. That wasn't something that was like naturally part of their family traditions. So I did always feel a sense. Of, like, I don't know about this. Like, (laughs) is this just something else that my parents are kind of forcing on me that that they think is cool? But, like, I didn't really think because I remember I also, when I was very, very young, I had Mandarin lessons, but being kind of like this ungrateful child, but also at the same time, just being a child, I. Would rather just like play because we were doing this with another family friend who was an adoptee. I would rather go play with my family Mm -hmm. friend rather than sitting through these tones lessons. So, yeah, no, I did have like that kind of exposure, but it wasn't really, like I said, something that felt like organic and natural or something that really like latched onto Mm me.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of hard for adoptive parents to try to incorporate into their adopted child's life because there's really not like a a rule book for it, and some of it makes them feel uncomfortable too. So maybe that's why they try to avoid it. And so, going back to meeting your foster family, were you able to communicate with one another and do you still keep in contact with them?
1: Yeah, so while I was there, we had a translator with us because despite my several attempts at learning Mandarin, I am definitely not proficient or fluent in it, like at all. I know the numbers and some of the tones but that's it (laughs) so yeah through the translator we were able to communicate very well it was a very emotional very powerful experience I remember because like at least like I know this but when we towards the end of my visit my foster grandmother I remember her just Crying, and this time tears of joy too. And then I was crying tears of joy, <laughs> and she was just like hugging me, and she called me like "bow bow," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, this is so healing, so heartwarming for me." So yeah, we were able to communicate effectively through that. Unfortunately, when I was visiting back then, that was only a couple years ago. I don't think Americans, or at least like I didn't know how to, or my parents, my adoptive parents, didn't know how to get like WeChat. So, because obviously that's like the primary form of communication there. So I'm not in contact with them through WeChat, but I do know that like I could probably get into contact with them with the orphanage. But just like with like the pandemic, it has definitely been very difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> with lines of communication and such.
0: Gotcha. And how long did you spend with them as they were fostering you?
1: So I was found on the steps of a hospital when I was about two days old I say about because it's an estimate then I was as I mentioned like processed kind of through the orphanage and then placed with my fathers family and I was there for it was like about like a year and a half so I spent a pretty decent <laughs> chunk of time with hmm. them and from what I can see in the photos it was a good time
0: <laughs> so yeah I can only imagine how emotional that those conversations would be when you did get back together.
1: Yeah, yeah. As one of like the big cultural bridges and everything, we had this really large meal that they had like prepared for me, and I remember that meal in particular. It was, it was so sweet because like they were also like giving me food as well like, on like the chopsticks. They were like putting it like on like my plate. They're like here, <laughs> here's more. <laughs> They're like eat
0: more. <laughs> mm. Ah, that's. I can only imagine what that was like for you, especially at 16, when just starting to try to figure out who you are, slash who you want to be, but yeah, did you feel like meeting them was a sense of closure or anything like that? I don't necessarily feel like it was a
1: sense of closure in the sense that like I was able to achieve this mythic sense of wholeness but also I say like a mythic sense of wholeness Mm. because I feel like it was closure for me in the sense that I realised that no one is ever able to achieve this sense of completeness and wholeness and fullness and everything. Because I feel like that's something that before that I had always like aspired to attain. And I realized afterwards that I am always gonna feel the sense of like I'm missing something and I will not be able to gain it back because I feel like that's just a part of being an adoptee, especially being a transnational, transracial adoptee, feeling like you lost out on something. Because you did, you did lose out on something, (laughs) like really large. (laughs) So I feel like it was closure in the sense that I was able to – I don't want to say necessarily have like a reality check, but I was able to better frame, or I had a better outlook on how I really wanted to face my adoptee identity and how I really wanted to face that sense of loss and everything, so yeah.
0: Yeah. I think for a lot of adoptees, like you said, it's – we lost out on something and that something was really big in entire culture that I guess should have been ours, quote unquote, but decided otherwise. And so with that, do you feel like grief was like a big emotion for you or a big feeling that you had to work through?
1: So, grief definitely is still like an emotion I feel like I'm dealing with and working through. Although it definitely has gotten better with time and with age, things do get better. But I do always feel like I will always have like the sense of this was wrongfully taken from me. And in talking with my other friends who are Chinese American, not adopted, I know that's something that I feel like most children of the diaspora like feel as well that they have lost their home culture, this sense of being like immersed in like, the daily everydayness of being in like, the birthland. Or not like, the birthland for them, but the home country for them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's such a large sense of grief that sometimes uh you just like feel like you have to like really bury it and like, not really touch it or acknowledge it. But I do because, like I said, I am very open about being an adoptee as well. I know when I start talking about my birth culture and that sense of loss as well, that like draws like that out um, in my non adoptee Asian American friends as well. And we ha- do all have like this kind of like collective sense of grief and longing. And I do feel like having the conversations about it does definitely lessen it every time we talk about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, I feel like Another thing that needs to be like, I feel like should be more prevalent in the adoptee community is adoptee joy as well. (laughs) Because there is joy in being an adoptee. I mean, obviously there is this really, really large, large sense of loss. But there is joy in like meeting other adoptees as well. And like recognizing them and being like, Oh my gosh, you're an adoptee too and having that shared sense of connection. And I do feel like there is a joy in being able to finally like be open and talk about that. And there is also like a joy and I feel like your adult life as well, when you, on your own will, you're able to maybe find a sense of connection, maybe like find that friend, or maybe like find like that one aspect of the culture that you really connect with and really be able to own that as like your sense of Chinese identity, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. There is joy too, and in being an adoptee is a unique experience that not a lot of people can say that they have. And when you do find that connection with others, it's pretty fabulous. And so would you say that, you know, finding people who are also adoptees has been a really a healing part too? Definitely. (laughs) I'm actually
1: starting an adoptee club at my college with another adoptee that I found through going through um, an Asian dessert social that I just like randomly went to one day, like mm. last semester. I like desserts. <laughs> and then we ended up talking, and we were like, we were walking around the nature trail and everything. You're like, you know what we should do? We should start an adoptee club. Because <laughs> I mean, there are enough adoptees in our college for us to mm. do that. So I have other friends who are adoptees. I was initially taking Mandarin mm. at the beginning of my first semester. However, I had to drop that because <laughs> it was making me very. It was bringing up a lot of emotions <laughs> and a lot of stress, and then I got sick, and then I was like, oh, I can't do this. So I talked to my and I dropped it. But I mean, just like even being in that class for a while, I remember like, I met four other adoptees in my class. So that was really great. And we are still friends. So it's like really. Oh, also one of them is is from like my home city, which is incredible, like amazing. Because my home city is pretty small and pretty rural, so I think there would be like that many people. Not like if I was adopted from Shanghai. So yeah, that's been really healing as well, forming those connections. And with my co-founder Jai Gugumaj, she's also if anybody wants to check this out, she writes articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer about being an adoptee. I highly recommend because she's a fabulous writer and a wonderful person and I'm actually visiting her next Thursday, I'm going down to Philadelphia to go visit. So we're starting the Adoptee Club in the fall, and we are really hoping that it will be like this place of healing for other adoptees as well. So,
0: Yeah, that's so awesome, I'm really glad that you were able to find that connection at your college and see the need for it to create a club. That's really cool. And so you mentioned that Mandarin class didn't really work out, just because it bring up a lot of emotions. Can you expand <laughs> on that? Or you don't have to? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So
1: I had thought, I was like, I've had like two years in my childhood with these Mandarin lessons that I mentioned earlier, my parents had gotten this Mandarin teacher for my sister and I and my family friend. So I was like, okay. I got this. I got this in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) I can do Mandarin. If anybody can do it, because I was supposed to be like in the beginner, like beginner, beginner intensive class, but it was very. (laughs) I mean, not surprise, surprise. Being in an intensive, it was very, very intense. Like the course load, it was. Usually, our courses are like one credit per semester, but this is like one point five credits, and you really worked hard for that extra half credit. So Mm -hmm. I felt like all of my time was basically consumed by Chinese, and mm. I was taking other classes that I was also like very interested and very invested in as well, so it was in addition to sucking up a lot of my time. I was studying so much for it, but I just wasn't attaining the grades. <laughs> That I wanted to be attaining (laughs) or achieving. Mm -hmm. I do have this very much perfectionist mindset, which I'm trying to break out of in college, but that was very difficult for me not being like the best at it and not being perfect at it and not. Feeling like this automatic like click, like the sense of connection to the language, either. Because mm-hmm. obviously, language is such a powerful thing. <laughs> like, if I had been, like, when I was like on, on my 16th birthday trip and I had been in China and, and been fluent in Mandarin, I do feel like my trip would have been radically different. But yeah, no, so in that sense it was just very, very <laughs> difficult for me when I saw the other adoptees too and they were like, I was doing very badly, I failed my first quiz and everything, and I don't think I couldn't really stand that because I also felt like I should just be like better at Mandarin than I was and i was just very frustrated with myself and just i was like oh wow am i really like a real chinese person <laughs> if i can't even get this right so mm-hmm. which obviously looking back and like retrospect going from 10 years of spanish a <laughs> romance language to <laughs> going to mandarin completely different <laughs> that was mm-hmm. not like realistic for me at all to believe that i like i could like attain perfect grades so
0: yeah gotcha so it's kind of like you went in with one expectation that it should come naturally to you but when that didn't happen because mandarin's hard yeah. <laughs> just for anyone uh, <laughs> it felt maybe a little more disappointing just because it felt like you're supposed to know mandarin to begin with but it didn't happen yeah
1: yeah no it was a big dilemma for me though I remember asking like every single person that I came across I was like hi I'm Erin and I'm having this dilemma with my (laughs) mandarin class do you want to listen to me vent about this and I literally there were so many people throughout those like I think it was like the second week of like college (laughs) that I just introduced myself to them and this like big dilemma because I was like I feel like I should stay in it like I should like stick it out and everything because my birth culture and all that but also at the same time it's ruining my college experience. So, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I I did end up going with the. Uh, maybe I'll revisit this in the future when it's not for a grade.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Right, man. College GPA. No. Important. <laughs> er, right. Trust me, I know. <laughs> yeah, one bad grade sinks you, but all the rest don't really even it out. It sucks. Yeah. So since we've not really met before this recording, I thought I would give you some background information about me since I've been the one asking you all the questions. So I'm 26. I'm a therapist from Kentucky and I was adopted at 18 months old from Fujian province and my parents are white and I grew up in a very small town in Kentucky which I did like it a lot honestly but I always did feel like a little out of place and it felt like all eyes are on me, and I'm that person that does not like all eyes on me. I'd rather blend into the background, but I really couldn't do that, and <laughs> like in my small town. So I think it contributed to a lot of maybe social anxiety because it's like, oh, I feel like everyone is looking at me. And I was like, yes, everyone is looking at you. So that's confirmatory. Great. <laughs> How do we get rid of this? But I didn't start exploring adoptee identity or just being Asian really until. Last year, when I was twenty-five, I just I knew it was a part that made me uncomfortable, so therefore I avoided it. Yay! And I just trying to be something that I'm not, like a true Asian, quote unquote, because I always felt really fake, which it's not a great feeling, uh, and s- still struggle with that too.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I completely relate.
0: <laughs> when I was going,
1: I mean. Maybe this was just like the middle school hormonal like puberty phase. Mm -hmm. But also I'm sure being an adoptee did not help either. But like I remember just being like, I do not want people to see me, like I want to be invisible. (laughs) I would duck down when like I saw people, I'd be like that, like I knew like outside of school I'd be like, "Mm, bye, (laughs) and I'd go like the other way. Mm -hmm. Like I was very, very avoidant in that sense. And I did not want to stick out like at all. Like, like I mentioned, I tried to like assimilate for a while and I wanted to be white. For a while, oh, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> Trans-racial adoptee thing, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> but you know, I do. begin talking about like how like it gets better with age. I mean, obviously, my going back to China that did like change a lot of things for me and like my like later part of my life, but. Also, just, I mean, I'm not saying that my college isn't a PWI because it is a PWI, but I, I do feel like college is definitely more of a time for like identity exploration. Hmm. And again, like I'm choosing like, the people who like I'm being friends with, like I'm really like, reforming all of like, my relationships basically. It's a fresh start, it's a restart. Hmm. So I have definitely made it a point to become friends with like with other adoptees and just like connect with them and connect with these adoptee groups as well. Like we said, like we that's how we actually got connected to like this adoptee Facebook group. <laughs> so I made made sure to like be in all of those and really just see all these other adoptees out in the world and try to form these connections. And then together like, I'm hoping that we're able to Kind of, or that's what I'm hoping for, like my adoptee club, especially that we're able to embark on this journey of finding like camaraderie, like together and togetherness and belonging in this niche, very like niche set of people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah, all my friends were white basically, and I was also like one of five Asian people in the school, and no one else was talking about. Being Asian or being adoptee and the struggles that come with it, and so I was like, I'm not going to volunteer that information because I think I validated myself at the time. I said like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Let's move on. But obviously, it does matter. <laughs> and I think discovering who I am and my identity has been—it's still a journey for sure. Even as a 26-year-old, even as a therapist, I think. Sometimes there's the pressure that you should figure yourself out by a certain time, but everyone has their own timeline. Now, being an adoptee is a lifelong journey. <laughs> like
1: you're going to going through all this trauma, abandonment, relationship <laughs> issues. I think like working those out throughout your entire life. Definitely. I know there are many, many things, but one thing in particular that is a trigger for me is definitely feeling like I'm a burden for other people, or that like I'm like unwanted somewhere. <laughs> like I am so quick to like back off in that sense from a relationship. I have a feeling like the other person like, isn't really like in it a hundred percent. But that's such like my perception too, because I'm always I feel like. Even when I'm going through my best competent stages, I do in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh my god, maybe they don't want me here. <laughs> maybe I'm just being too like extra. Maybe I am just going to get like abandoned by them again, <laughs> which abandonment issues and all of that sense. And I don't necessarily, cause like. I used to once be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have this like, all fixed out when I'm an adult. Like <laughs> I mean, I am an adult now, I'm I am i nineteen, but <laughs> I mean not like an adult mm-hmm. adult, you know.
0: <laughs> Me neither. <laughs>
1: but back then I thought I was like, Oh yeah, nineteen is so oh. old, like I'll have all everything figured <laughs> out. <laughs> like I don't have these issues. But yeah, as I'm getting older, I'm not that old, but I I definitely have realized that it's it is going to be like a lifelong I don't want to say struggle necessarily, but a lifelong process. And even when I'm like 50, I'm sure I'll, I'll still be going through some things. Although it will it will get better. Mm. It does get better mm. with age. And yeah, no, I completely relate to the <laughs> being one of five agents <laughs> in the school. I grew up on Long Island, mm. specifically Rockwell Center, if anybody knows that, (laughs) but my village is just very, very white. I mean, we're very close to the city as well, so I thought there'd be like, and my parents thought there'd be more diversity, and they also had the misconception of feeling like, Oh, yeah, I mean, we're white parents, but we're relatively close to New York, so everyone will be super progressive, super open minded, and everything about us having like, Chinese children and us being white. But there were some issues <laughs> throughout oh. just like my growing up, and just people being like, Are those really your children? <laughs> or like asking me if like I was okay. <laughs> Yeah, and just stuff like that, miscommunication stuff, which I mean, it is mostly, I mean, for the most part, I don't really feel like it was malevolent intent, but it is definitely damaging growing up that way and knowing that you don't look
0: like you belong to your parents. So, yeah, my parents grew up in Kentucky, I've been in Kentucky their whole lives, and I remember my mom saying, like, it's amazing the audacity of people who think they could just come up to you and ask personal questions about you just because you look different. I think someone asked in a cracker barrel, of course, like, how much did you pay for her? And I was like, ooh, that's, oh. <laughs> that's awkward. That's big yikes. But if I was, you know, able to say big yikes at the time, I would have. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think my parents have realized as they've gotten older and as I've gotten older that there are difficulties being Asian in like the south in a small town and I think sometimes my parents feel guilty or at least I think my mom feels guilty for bringing me to a place that maybe isn't so like welcoming or so open-minded I guess because like you mentioned before the anti-Asian hate stuff was spiking or at least being in the center of the news for once even though racism against Asians has been here the entire time. So true. My mom was like broken-hearted probably more upset than or at least more like visually upset than I at the time mm-hmm. and Yeah, it was just that was a big wake-up call and for me That's when I started thinking about like yeah, Ali you are Asian and for realsies <laughs> like, Sorry, not sorry and sometimes people don't like you as much because of that which sucks because you're pretty cool But that's their loss. Yeah, yeah, I and even, like, in my therapy practice, I've had clients and parents of clients who, especially during the pandemic when I was seeing people that, like, were very mistrusting, which, you know, that's them. But, yeah, sometimes I think it's hard to imagine people can be so ignorant, but I'm glad to know that that is the minority of people, and there is majority that... Are open minded and welcoming and kind, and they lead with kindness rather than ignorance. And at the end of the day, fear.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, like I said, I feel like the majority of people who were like, asking these questions, like there were these miscommunications, it wasn't necessarily conscious mal intent on their part. It was just like not having the information, like being ignorant is more of ignorance than anything. And I actually had like this one incident where I was like, I was like, because, like, you know, like going into college, you want to make as many friends as possible. So, I mean, my college, Bryn Mawr, is a historically women's college, but we're in this consortium with Haverford College and Swarthmore College. And I was trying to befriend someone from Swarthmore because, I mean, I had some Haverford friends already. So I was like, okay, let me complete this triangle. <laughs> and we were talking for a while, and he lived pretty close by to, like, he lived on Long Island. And I remember just like telling him, got to like certain point. I was like, oh yeah, like I'm a transracial adoptee. And he was like, that's not a thing. I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> I was like I am. Are <laughs> saying I'm not a thing? Weird. <laughs> and then literally we went on for that for a while. I was like, why are we debating about this? <laughs> like you're debating about my lived experience. And then he was like, oh yeah and he was like oh wait maybe being, like transracial is a thing so then he sent me this article and all the news sources like the new york post there was like One where these twins were, they were like born different races. He's like, Oh, yeah. So being transracial is a thing. I was like, This is not what being a transracial adoptee is at all. I was like, You are severely misinformed. I was like, This is the weirdest response I've ever gotten from (laughs) anyone after telling them that I was a transracial adoptee. Like, I, I did not expect this. So I sent him another article about being a transracial
0: adoptee. Oh, boy.
1: And yeah, yeah, let me just stop talking, so my dreams of having to work with my friends were quashed, but. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> oh my. Yeah, that is an interesting response. <laughs>
1: It's a lot of misinformation, and I think that's another thing that in the adoptee community or the transracial adoptee community, uh, something we have to do, just reclaiming like the term like transracial because it did originate with transracial adoptees. It definitely has been co-opted by other people like Ollie London, <laughs> and it, that's just not where the term is originally from. Like transracial being a transracial adoptee. So I feel like that that is just one thing that's one of the bones that I pick with a lot of people. <laughs> like you are you're misusing this term, or you don't know the origins of this term Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just being able to educate people or make them more aware about that that's something that i definitely feel very passionate about
0: yeah for sure and at the end of the day some people unfortunately don't want to educate themselves i mean i guess that one dude tried by looking up articles but (laughs) another direction um not the right one but he tried so yeah i definitely get that like being an advocate and being able to educate others. And something that I'm trying to do in like my own practice, I'm going to a conference and I'm talking about COVID-19 impact on Asian American mental health in November. Because when I went last year, no one talked about it. And I was like, really guys? Mm. I was like, "Allie, who would talk about this? There's like four of you. (laughs) Okay, so now I have determined, that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to talk about it because it's important not only to me but many other people and you know i've always felt like since i'm not like a real asian like whatever then i can't like speak for like asian issues or things like that but i am a real asian <laughs> and that's yes. part of my lived experience and no one can take that away from me not even myself and you know i was telling myself i was like you know you could start it and because someone has to and then you can bring other people to the table to make up for the deficits that you have with this like topic because At the end of the day, it's just not about me. It's about like a whole group of people the fastest growing minority <laughs> in this country right now and Mental health matters, but that's just me being a therapist oh. yeah, let's go off. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, and Asian Americans are like the least likely to seek out therapy services of, like, all the races, yeah,
1: yeah, no, and like, just like, even with me, my experience, my mental health, they are growing up. And I mean, obviously, my mom knew that like, being an adoptee, there was going to be like a lot of trauma, but I guess she, like, she didn't realize, like, you don't really know, I guess, like, the full extent of it until you have the living, breathing child in front of you, <laughs> and she's like growing up in this like white environment, but it was just something that. I always felt like I couldn't talk about. There's definitely like this kind of stigma attached to it. Not because I knew that my adoptive mother would like get mad about it. My adoptive parents were not like they didn't feel like betrayed when I decided to go off to China or like when I started being open about being an adoptee or like wanting to learn more about my birth culture. Like they were all for that. Like Mm -hmm. I said, they had always been trying to immerse me in like the culture, although not the most successful attempts. But they were always very supportive of that. It was just that. I Feel like maybe it was more myself and more of their just not knowing, like, what like my or what like an adoptee lived experience, what like their kind of mental health needs are. Because I did feel guilty sometimes just being, oh, yeah, we're just asking. Because I remember, like, I was like, I think I need a therapist, and then I was like, how come? (laughs) I was like, adoptee trauma, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) but yeah, no, just just stuff like that growing up. I, I definitely feel like it was difficult for me to talk about my mental health and just feeling like I had all of these like problems that I had to like carry them like alone and by myself and all of that because I also had like this like big kind of goal I guess like in like my life relating back to a like, sense of like achieving this mythic wholeness of just constantly reinventing myself so that I would be like the best version of myself. But like not necessarily in like that really like cringy way (laughs) that like you see on like motivational posts. Mm -hmm. But like just like best version of myself in the sense that I wouldn't have any of this trauma or baggage or anything. And I would just be like this glowing, beautiful, whole, gorgeous version of myself. But yeah, like I said again, just knowing that that's not something I'm wonderful, I am fantastic. <laughs> I am exuberant the way I am. <laughs> and just learning to be able to find joy in that and not having to constantly like feel like I have to fix myself. That's not to say that I'm not doing the work on myself either mm-hmm. or but it it is to say that it's not that i feel like there's something inherently like wrong with me now it's just like oh yeah like if i want to kind of get better at like this little thing like if i want to be someone who like initiate more conversations or like contact with people like that's something that i want to do like break out of my shell or i want to like again like mention to people when i first meet them that i'm an adoptee like i'm going to do that so yeah
0: yeah, and I think that's a good view to have because you're right, this like mythic wholeness, this shiny, perfect version of ourselves, probably not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. No, it's not gonna happen for anyone regardless of whether or not they're an exactly. adoptee. <laughs> I would have very straight hair. If it, no, I'm kidding. And I guess just the theme of accepting you as you are in this moment can be really powerful. And not a lot of people know how to do that, which, you know, something worth finding out. And even myself, as I don't know if I'm at the point where I can say with great pride and confidence that I am a transracial adoptee and that's great, but I'm getting closer to that than where I was before. So, you know, we can't look at the end goal and be like, oh, that's so far away, but we look in like the little step in front of us. I'm like, oh, that's doable. So. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not to say that I don't still
1: struggle <laughs> a lot of things about myself and just like a lot of my own insecurities. But I feel like something that I have to keep on like reminding myself is that it's not necessarily about all those traumas and everything. It's not about completely dropping them off of me. If that like makes sense. Or these insecurities. It's not really in the moment. It's not about completely getting rid of them or purging of them. It's about doing things in spite of them. If you feel like that sense of, oh like I don't I don't know if I should like wear this or like I don't know if I should like say this and like speak up or I don't know if I should like go out and like do this opportunity because I, I feel insecure or I feel like it's it might be like a trigger for some of my trauma. I'm just like, no, I might just do it anyway and we'll go along with it. We'll see how it goes and I'll learn from it. So it's like doing things in spite of. I feel like that's what I've kind of learned in my own little journey.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And at the end of the day, we can't get rid of past trauma, we can't undo a story that, you know, has already been told, essentially, but we can incorporate it into our narrative in an acceptable way that, to us, no matter what that is, different for everyone. And be it a chapter in our lives, rather than our entire life of just struggle and trauma and things that we gotta get over. But yeah, it's never going to completely leave, because that's not how it works. But we can get to the point where it's just like part of our story, not like our entire being. Because there's so many other facets of us that are cool and awesome too, that deserve spotlights. You know,
1: we are more than this one narrative
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) of like,
1: we are more than just the trauma or just even the adoptive parent's narrative. Of just being this perpetual kind of child, or just being grateful and all that for like coming over to America and having this quote-unquote like life and being like this lucky child and everything. We are so multifaceted adoptees, and there's such a broad range of us, and everybody is at a different point in their own journey, um,
0: but I think that's like what
1: makes the adoptee community
0: really wonderful.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I've talked to several adoptees just over the week with these interviews, and it's very interesting to see who is where on the journey and who is to the level of accepting themselves and all that stuff. And I think I've noticed trend: the older you are, the probably the more likely you are to be more cool with yourself than the younger. But that's just my observation out of like six people. But <laughs> still. <laughs> No, age does definitely help. It definitely
1: does. And yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing how my journey goes as I get along, because there are definitely still those days and maybe even like periods of time (laughs) where I feel like I'm completely battered, like my confidence is completely in the gutter (laughs) and everything. And I just, again, I kind of have this sense of, oh, no, I don't want people to see me (laughs) and all of that. I'm actually coming out of one of those kind of, lows right now. July has been a pretty good month though so far mm-hmm. and it's for listeners, I don't know when you'll be listening, but it's nearing the end of July right now and I really feel like July has been like the start of my summer, even though I got out of school and like May and everything. I kind of feel mm-hmm. like I've been like coming back alive and everything and It's been really wonderful as well, but going through those lows too, because my first semester was basically, I mean, that's not to say that there weren't like rough patches and things that I I had to work through my first semester of college, but I was just like, at the end of it, it was just like wonderful, amazing. I felt like was a girl boss. I was glowing (laughs) and radiant, but then it was kind of, maybe it's like spring sadness Seasonal depression, that kind of time of year, like I don't know, March through May, or like even like March through like June, was just like very rough for me. And I felt again, like all of this sense of like, oh my gosh, I am a burden and I'm going through like this really bad, like mental health period, and I can't talk to anybody about it. But as I have begun to talk to more people about it, talking to my friends about it, talking to you about this, talking to the listeners on the podcast, it definitely does help. So time does allow things to get better and it allows you like that space to like process and everything yeah
0: and those negative emotions and those lows are still important and they're still valid no matter where you are in life but all feelings are temporary and eventually it's gonna be over and you're gonna have a new feeling yeah which can sometimes be comforting but sometimes I feel like we're afraid of our big negative feelings because they're not that great to experience. And why would you want to experience them? And so we avoid them, but that makes them scarier at the end of the day. And then we avoid them more because they're even more scary. So it's kind of a cycle that feeds into itself, unfortunately, but no feeling is ever going to be bigger than you. It's impossible. Exactly. So exactly. you're going to get through it no matter how big it feels. And you will, you, you will. will. There's always a light on the channel, (laughs) a rainbow after rain. (laughs) So is there any last words you want to say to adoptees or just listeners of the podcast? Well, I am going to slip in. A quick promo
1: <laughs> for the podcast that I work for. So I am also a podcast researcher, and I was co-host for season five of Dear Asian Girl. We have our new off-season coming out. So if anybody knows like Dear Asian Youth, or if you haven't heard of Dear Asian Youth or Dear Asian Girl, I highly recommend going to listen to our podcast because I actually last season produced an episode on adoptees and adoption mm. with. If anybody knows, like Red Thread Broken, like Grace Newton, and also Kimberly McKee, who wrote this wonderful, wonderful text on transnational adoption and the transnational adoptee industrial complex, I highly recommend. It is a bit scholarly, a little, a little bit dense, but hmm. we do we break it down, and it is just a wonderful episode. And I think my podcast, Gears and Girl, is a wonderful podcast,
0: so I highly recommend to go and listen yeah. to it. Yeah, I would definitely highly recommend too. I have listened to a couple episodes. I need to keep going. The Sure Crime podcast. They keep getting me every time. So <laughs> uh, okay. Well thank you so much, Erin, for talking with me. It's been a delight and it's been wonderful to meet another amazing adoptee. And yeah, I hope that we can keep in touch.
1: You too. All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining Erin and I on this episode. I hope you keep listening and we'll see you next time.